We'll be reading the entirety of chapter 14, starting verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part sided with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with the food and gladness." And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, And made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Persia, They went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Maybe see... Good morning. morning. I ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in the word this morning. Father, we thank you for your good word. 
We thank you that this is a word that serves as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that this word stands eternal in the heavens, that this word is a word that has the power to save. This word is a sanctifying word. It's a cleansing word. It's a word that enables us to walk in newness of life. It's a word of hope, a word of comfort, a word of healing. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. May we this morning, your church, be attentive to your word. May we hear and may we be ready to respond to what you're teaching us this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your maps, you might pull those out. They're going to be on the move again today. Maybe helpful to take a look at that as we're reading through the text. You know, the book of Acts is, is teaching us about the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. And it's a, it's a history of how God's word is unfolded to the nations. And it chronicles primarily the preaching and teaching of God's word and shows the, the division that comes as a result of truth penetrating Falsehood, darkness, getting exposed by light. We see this time and again throughout the book of Acts. And the book of Acts records a picture of reality, I believe, about how the gospel truth marches onward. And you know, while the good news continues to travel, we're going to see that conflict is going to travel along with the good news. Wherever the good news seems to go, conflict is right around the corner, it seems. And once again, right here in Acts chapter 14, we'll be looking at the first 20 verses this morning. The Bible is pairing the gospel truth and conflict. And once again, they share the same stage in the text. You know, I got to thinking and and wondering, could, could it be that the writer... Moved by the Holy Spirit. Luke, remember, is our writer moved along by the Holy Spirit, giving us this church history. Could it be that the writer desires to turn our eyes toward the reality of conflict that awaits the gospel carrier? Are you a gospel carrier? Perhaps that's a good question to ask yourself this morning. Have you been carrying the gospel as a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you experiencing any kind of conflict over this gospel truth? As you study the text this morning, I'd like to submit a question for consideration in our time. And it is, what is the text teaching us about the gospel and conflict? Really, I believe that's the big idea of the text. The gospel creates conflict. It does. It creates conflict. According to the text, though, how does this gospel create conflict? I believe the text would give us three insights into helping us answer that question. First of all, here in these first seven verses... The gospel creates conflict through public proclamation. Okay, we see this pretty clearly in the text. 
creating conflict through public proclamation. Proclamation in particular in the synagogue. Paul and Barnabas, you might remember if you were here last week or heard the message online, they have been expelled from Antioch, Poseidia. And before leaving, you remember they speak volumes with their feet. They shake the dust off their feet. Essentially, symbolically saying that these Jews in Antioch were no better than pagan unbelievers. So they're going, they're leaving, they move on, but they leave, verse 52 of chapter 13, they leave behind some disciples, don't they? There's some disciples there that are filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you recall, Paul and Barnabas, they found the synagogue upon arrival in Antioch. If you go back to chapter 13, and you see that in verse 14, they came into Antioch and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And if you back up and leave it even a little further, after leaving Antioch, Syria, they went to Cyprus. And when they got to Cyprus, they landed in Salamis, verse 5, and they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So we see a pattern, right, already developing. When they go to a place, their first location that they're looking for is a Jewish synagogue. And we talked last week about some of the reasons for that. But we see even today, as they move into Iconium, we see them moving into a synagogue. But the pattern that's developing should at least cause us to wonder whether this is a good idea. I mean, the very first verse of chapter 14 says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. And you know, I got to thinking about learning something the hard way. Learning something through a hard experience. Have you ever had to learn something through a hard experience? Difficult experience? Some of you maybe learned something as you were getting your driver's license. Maybe it happened while you were in the car and the person was in there with you and you made a wrong turn or you hit the gas when you should have hit the brake and you learned some valuable lessons. Maybe, maybe there was a, a dent in the car as a result of a, of a particular accident and you learned not to do those things again. Maybe for some of you, it was your first day at the job. And you're excited about the job, and you go in, and at the end of the day, you are just entirely overwhelmed thinking about all that you need to do in this new job. You went into it excited. You went into it thrilled that you had received this new job. But one day at the office, and you're, you're wondering whether you are really truly competent to do this job. I can remember transitioning from high school to college and remember the first practice on the basketball court. And I remember after it was done, it was nearly three hours long. And I didn't know this at the time. I knew this after the fact. But evidently those first practices are intended to weed out those who really aren't going to be there. 
They're intended to be hard. Only the ones that are going to commit to being there and really try and do this well are going to remain. But I have to admit, that first day of practice, my first year, my freshman year, I was ready. I talked to my roommate. We were talking in the room afterwards. Man, if this is the way it's going to be, I don't know if I can do this. It's hard. Hard things. Difficult things. We go through difficult experiences, and sometimes the way we feel through a difficult experience may prompt us to not want to go back that direction again. See, I believe that hard experiences, they're not always bad things, are they? In fact, there are some very good lessons I believe we can learn through these hard experiences. And I believe the Lord would have us go through some of these, what he calls trials, to strengthen our faith. It's common among man to want to forego these hard things, to steer clear where there's something hard in sight, the tendency of man is to steer clear because of maybe how that previous hard experience felt. Man prefers to climb the fence. I was reminded of that picture in Pilgrim's Progress where the path that Pilgrim had been walking was rocky and he saw the fence and he saw the grassy meadow on the other side and he saw how, oh, how wonderful and how pleasant it would be if I just could walk on the other side and so he hops the fence. How many times, church, do we have that same mentality? We're on a hard path and we just want to get off the path. You know, Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. They're put in prison for disrupting the peace, essentially. And at night, the angel of the Lord shows up and he, he opens the doors. He rescues them from the prison bars. And it's an odd rescue. It's an odd rescue, I have to admit, it's very odd. Because when I think of a rescue mission, I think of someone coming in and rescuing that person or persons and then getting them away from the danger. But that's not what I read in Acts 5. The angel rescues him and then here's what you read in Acts chapter 5, verse 20. The angel says to him, now go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Well, wait a minute. He just got thrown in prison for being a witness to Jesus. And now the angel of the Lord's telling him to go into the temple of all places and speak this message again. In the spring of 1912, Sundar Singh, gospel carrier, he made the journey across the Himalayas into Tibet. And he entered this village of Rasar, where he was shortly arrested for preaching a, what they called a foreign religion. He was taken to the outskirts of the village and he was thrown in an abandoned well, left to die. Miraculously, after three days, after three days in a well where he came to realize that there were other people in the well, other people, mind you, that were long dead. After about three days, he heard a sound and he heard the, the, the cover of the well start to open. And he, and, and he saw this rope make its way down and he grabbed on with the strength that he had, lifted himself, he, pulled, he was pulled out of the well. He never saw who it was that rescued him. 
And as he's lying there the next day, warming himself in the sun, it says that he prayed and thanked God for sending someone to rescue him from the well. He wondered what he should do next. His first inclination was to get away from Rasar as fast as possible. Amen. That's what my first thought would have been too. Get away. But the more he thought about it, the more he became convinced that was not what God wanted him to do. Can you imagine this? It was too good of an opportunity to miss. So Sundar put, pulled his robe and turban and headed back into Rasar. The people in the marketplace were wide-eyed when Sundar began preaching there again. As far as they knew, Sundar was dead. How could he now be preaching to them once more? News traveled fast, and it was not long before the monastery guard came and arrested Sundar once again. How can this be, the Grand Lama? He was the head chief. You were thrown down into the well and left for dead. Who rescued you? Who is the traitor among us? Sundar tried to explain his rescue, but he had been so weak and semi-conscious that he had not even noticed who it was that rescued him. The Grand Lama was determined to get to the bottom of the matter. If there was a traitor in their midst, then he declared he was going to find him. And that was when one of the Lama's officials stepped forward and pointed out that there was only one key to the lock on the well cover. And that key was still clipped to the Lama's belt. The Grand Lama suddenly looked alarmed. And Sundar thought he noticed terror in the man's eyes. The Grand Lama abruptly stopped questioning Sundar. Get out of Rasar, the Grand Lama ordered Sundar. Never return here lest the power that protects you bring disaster on us. Sundar left the Grand Lama's presence and walked out of Rasar, sure that his return to the town had had a profound effect upon both the Grand Lama and the people of the town. Amen. See, it didn't make sense to us that he would go back into town and do the same thing. But the Lord got their attention. These hard things. You see, the gospel creates conflict through public proclamation. Acts 4, Acts 5 show the conflict. The life of Sundar Singh shows, models this conflict as well. And in Acts 14, you're led to wonder whether it's a good idea for Paul and Barnabas to go into the Jewish synagogue. I mean, don't you remember, Paul, Barnabas, don't you remember what just happened in Antioch, Pisidia? Why would you go back to the place of persecution? No, different synagogue, yes, but Jewish synagogue, nevertheless. Is this a wise idea? Now, verse 1 of chapter 14 leads you to believe that the gospel proclamation bore great fruit. Praise God, okay? Maybe in Iconium, the gospel can go forth without any conflict. Oh, but then you read verse 2. <laughs> you don't have to read very far. And here it comes. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews, notice once again who the opposition is, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. What started out well turned into conflict pretty quickly. This public proclamation caused quite a stir. And so what do they do? Do they head out of town? Not yet. Verse 3 says they stayed there a long time. Speaking boldly in the Lord. Who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. 
granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So when conflict arises over the gospel proclamation, Paul and Barnabas, they're not quick to flee. You see, there are times when we do flee. And we see in a text, Paul and Barnabas, they are leaving in certain situations. But this is not one of those situations. And I believe there's an important principle here. Opposition to the gospel is not necessarily time to flee. I believe that's one of the things the text would point out to us. For the missionaries, these missionaries had been sent to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the nations. And the conflict that's brought about in verse 2 needed their attention, needed a word spoken. The opposition was poisoning their minds against the brethren. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas, text says, they remained a long time speaking boldly in the north. And we need to remember, we talked about this last week. The, the, the idea of them speaking boldly, right? Power of the Holy Spirit speaking through them. The Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace. It's a great description of his word, isn't it? Word of grace. We've, we've been given his word. It's a wonderful gift that he's given to us. He's graced us with his word. And God has granted to Paul and Barnabas, signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And we see that in Acts 13, God was at work through Sergius Paulus. Remember that? In Cyprus? And he enabled Sergius Paulus to see God's power through what happened with Elymas, the magician. But he also heard the teaching of Paul. And so God was at work in them, God was at work through them. There are some obvious markers that God still had some work for them to accomplish in Iconium. And so you arrive at verse 4 in the text. Look at verse 4. The multitude, but the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the sent ones, the missionaries from Antioch, Syria. How many of you young men have ever played tug of war? A few of you? Yeah. Do you win when you play tug of war? You get on the side. There's a, there's a, this is a little side note. When you're playing tug of war, it's not necessarily the amount of people on your side of the rope. It's the, the heavier folks. You want to get the, the ones that are, that are heavier and weightier on your side so that you can pull. And you're tugging and you're pulling. And what's the objective of the game? It's to pull them over to your side, isn't it? You want to get them over to your side. As I'm reading this text and I'm seeing what's going on, I'm seeing they're putting forth the gospel, this public proclamation of the gospel. I'm seeing it bear fruit. But then I'm also seeing that there are some who are stirring up, poisoning the minds against the brethren. And now God has been working through Paul and Barnabas, granting signs and wonders in addition to speaking boldly. And in spite of all that, we see verse 4, there's still division in the camp. There's still this tug of war spiritually going on. Well, from all that we gather and know from God's word and the account and record we see in the book of Acts, God is more powerful than man. His word seems to always win out. Seems to always be more powerful. And so when you're looking at the text and you see this opposition 
we know that many have believed. Praise the Lord. We see in verse 1 there was some fruit. Many have believed, but there are still many who do not believe. This gospel has borne some fruit to this point, but the gospel has also stirred up some conflict. In the multitude of the city, do you see it? It's divided. Perhaps for some time it was divided until, verse 5, a violent attempt is put together by some of the Gentiles and some of the Jews, probably led by some of the rulers, it says there in verse 5. This time the plan is to abuse and stone them. And herein lies a major difference, I believe, between the spiritual tug of war going on with the gospel. The carriers of the gospel stay a long time proclaiming the gospel. That's the extent of what they do. They get the gospel out, and God is confirming his word of grace among them, even granting signs and wonders to be done among them. The opposition, though, goes from poisoning the minds of the Gentiles, in verse 2, to now conspiring with the Jews to kill the messengers. It reminds me in many ways of what Jesus says in the Gospels about how God sent the prophets and his people, and his people slaughtered him. They killed him. They did the same thing to Jesus. They conspired together to get rid of him. It reminded me that if you are a carrier of the gospel, you are a marked man. You are a marked woman if you're a carrier of the gospel. And as I was thinking about that, I was, I was drawn to, to, uh, to something that I don't even know if they still have these today. But as I was preparing this and just thinking of examples of this and trying to put forward, some of you might remember, some of the younger ones may not. But do you remember the far side calendar? There used to be a far side calendar, right? And they would have some bizarre, that's why it's called far side. It was kind of bizarre. Every now and then there were some that were pretty good. I just remember this one as I'm thinking about this. And I remember these two deer. They're standing up and they're talking in the woods. You remember this one? You've probably seen it. And the picture of the one deer as he's talking to his buddy, he's got these concentric circles painted on his belly. And the other deer is kind of standing there and he's shaking his head. And and the the caption below the picture says, Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. (laughs) And the whole idea there is that, wow, here's this deer and he's got this big target. You see, carriers of the gospel are like this deer with a target painted across its chest. If you're publicly proclaiming the gospel, you are going to be a target. You'll be hated by the world because of Jesus, and and you will go through tribulations. But we see in John 16, Jesus says, take heart. He says, I've overcome the world. Conflict from the proclamation of the gospel isn't cause to fear, not cause to throw in the towel, not cause to call it quits. You see, that that picture of the deer causes me to wonder, are we trying to witness for Jesus, which is Acts 1-8, right? Witness to Jesus. Wait for the power. Witness to Jesus all my days. Are we trying to witness to Jesus without counting the cost involved? Does gospel proclamation and witness happen apart from being a marked man or woman for the Lord Jesus Christ? If God has called you to himself and has placed his spirit in you, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, how is it that you can approach witnessing without a birthmark, without a mark of Jesus Christ 
without there being some life in you. It's a sad commentary when Christians desire to or think that they can be a witness and fly under the radar of being a target. You are marked, chosen, called, and because you're a child of God, you need to know that that in and of itself brings conflict with this world. See, God rescues Paul and Barnabas. We see in verses 5 and 6. Praise the Lord, he does. They hear of the plot. He alerts them to move. Now it is time to flee. They move on to Lystra and Derby, And verse 7 tells us what they were doing. They were preaching there. Something new. Preaching. That's what they did wherever they went. They were preaching and teaching. Notice that they moved to a different place. But they do the same thing. It gets presented a little differently as we'll see here in just a moment in Lystra. They publicly proclaim the gospel. The gospel that got them in trouble in Paphos and in Antioch and in Iconium. They're taking that same gospel now into Lystra and into Derby. Let me ask. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to take this gospel for which you're getting persecuted? For which you're getting verbally abused and now threatened with your own life? Would you be willing to keep going with this? Paul and Barnabas, keep moving. They're called of the Lord. This is what the Lord has called them to be doing. Proclaiming the message of the gospel to the nations. So the gospel creates conflict through public proclamation. But we see here in verses 8 through 18, it, it also creates conflict where idolatry has previously reigned. Gospel creates conflict where idolatry has previously reigned. We see this pagan conflict take place probably in the marketplace. There's no mention of the synagogue here in Lystra. Leads you to believe that Lystra had a very limited Jewish population at the time. We know there were some Jewish population because in another couple chapters we're going to see that this is where Timothy is from. He's from Lystra. And we know Timothy, Timothy had, a, had a mother and a grandmother that shared the scriptures with him from young age. So we know there's some Jewish population, but not enough to have a synagogue. Lystra seems to be the first predominantly Gentile audience in this missionary journey. They come to Lystra. And we're led to believe that Paul had been speaking for some time. We're introduced in the text to a crippled man. This reminds us in many ways of the account in Acts chapter 3. You remember Acts chapter 3, the gate called Beautiful. Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And this lame man from his mother's womb was carried. He was there daily at the gate called Beautiful, asking for alms for those who entered. Here we have another crippled in Lystra. And the text says in verse 9, this man heard Paul speaking. The idea of the verb tense there was he 
was hearing. He, he had heard Paul speak over a period of time. He'd been listening to what Paul was saying. Paul saw that this man had faith to be healed. And there's no further description of this. This is one of those verses I wish there were some additional details. Paul was, as he was speaking, was able to discern. The Lord granted him discernment about this young man. He had faith to be healed. And he says in a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. The man doesn't just stand up straight on his feet. What's he do? Leaping and walking. It reminds me again of that, that man in Acts 3. Walking and leaping and praising God. The song, right? Remember that song? That's exactly what we see here. And he's bearing witness once again to God's grace, working through Paul. This man, listen, this man who had never walked starts walking and leaping. He'd never walked before. Now, this act of healing sets in motion the next wave of conflict, if you will, with the gospel. Initially, the conflict seems harmless, perhaps. <laughs> the missionaries are a bit confused. Because verse 11 says that when the people saw what Paul had done, they're attesting what happened to what Paul did. They raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, which was a language that Paul and Barnabas probably weren't privy to. There was probably a little bit of confusion here what was going on at the outset. They raised their voice. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now there's a legend in Lystra in the first century that was written about by the pro, uh, poet Ovid. And in that particular poem he was writing about these gods coming down incognito, disguised as men. And that there were a couple people in town who took them in and provided hospitality for them. No one else in town would, but these two people did. And there came a day when there was a great flood. And the flood washed away and killed everyone except for these two people who offered hospitality to the gods who had come down. That's the legend in Lystra. Got to remember, we're dealing with a different group of folks here. They're worshiping all kinds of different gods. But now they see this man who had not been able to walk. He not only stands up straight, he's walking and leaping. He's a testimony that for them, the gods have come down. And so what the, what's their response then? They want to make sure, again, going back to the legend, they don't want to be the ones left behind. They don't want to be the ones destroyed because of their lack of hospitality to the gods who have come down. And so what happens? Barnabas and Paul both get a new name. 
Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, the pieces probably start coming together in verse 13 for Paul and Barnabas. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. You can almost picture Paul and Barnabas' eyes. And they're looking at each other. And they're thinking, they're really going to sacrifice to us? And we see in the text, we see that the response from the text. It's interesting because as they go in and as they are, this man, this priest of Zeus, brings the bulls, the oxen. He's intending to sacrifice. What happens here? There is now conflict that's arising. But what's the nature of the conflict? Yes, the gospel is going to be put in play. And yes, there are words that are going to get spoken here in just a moment that are going to speak to the people about this God, this one God over all creation. But there seems to be conflict here centered in the fact that these people were a people, an idolatrous people. There was a way of living for these people. They'd been living this way for so long. They were accustomed to living this way. They didn't know to live any other way. You get a a clear picture, I believe, in the text of this idolatry. You get an idea of what these people worshipped. And the gods for them came in many forms. God of the sun, moon, stars, God of rain. If it didn't rain, oh, the God of rain, that God's upset with us. God of sun, the God uh, who's overseeing the harvest. The the gods were responsible for showing favor to the people. And they were the cause for why something didn't turn out the way that they should. Oh, the gods are against us. See, the gospel creates conflict where idolatry has previously reigned. And we see this here in Lystra. Paul, they call Hermes. Barnabas, given the name Zeus. You know, as Paul and Barnabas start to figure out what's going on, I was reminded of what just happened. If you turn maybe to the left, a page or two in your Bible, to Acts chapter 12, you might remember King Herod. And verse 21, on this set day, Herod, he was arrayed in royal apparel, the fine royal apparel, and he sat on his throne, and he gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting. Listen to what they're shouting. The voice of a God, and not of a man. Oh, King Herod, that felt so good. Oh, oh, I like that. Say it one more time. Then immediately... An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. You see, King Herod desired to be a god and and he liked it. 
Even unto his death, he liked it. I want you to see here in Acts 14 how this text could have led to the decline of Paul and Barnabas' missionary work. I want you to, to be able to see. Do you recognize that God's gospel carriers are in jeopardy of yielding to the schemes of the evil one right here? Do you realize that the gospel right here in Lystra could have been profaned and compromised? This is a dangerous spot for these missionaries to be in. Different kind of danger, isn't it? The multitude of people in Lystra are ready to sacrifice to them, seeing them as gods. Church, do you realize we live in a culture that likes to elevate men and women to similar God-like status? We could probably talk for quite a long time about how our culture has done this. The latest and greatest we see in the realm of sports, the World Cup. Some of you probably have no idea what the World Cup is. It's soccer. We have gods who kick a ball. We have gods who dribble and shoot a ball. We have gods who hit a ball. We have gods who run and pass a ball. In the realm of music, we have gods who sing and perform. Politics. We have these gods who make promises. In the business realm, we have these gods who know how to make a buck. They know how to make money. And people elevate them. And the media does a fine job of creating gods. These gods who look good. These gods who wear the right clothing. These gods who mingle in the right circles. Do you know that the church of Jesus Christ likes to elevate certain folks as well? Now, we may not use the same terminology as gods. The church's actions reveal that they have a plethora of gods. The gods of the conference. Is so-and-so going to be speaking? The gods of the pulpit. See, because of technology today, it used to not be this way. But because of technology today, sermons are easily accessible and pulpit gods emerge. You know that you can actually make the top 10 downloaded sermons list? If your sermon is just good enough, you can make the top 10. Gods of the blog. You know, it amazes me. How so many have time to read what someone has written in their personal blog and yet they take no time and have no time. It's mentioned, I have no time. I'm busy. I have no time for God's word. Oh, but I got time to read my God's blog. 
the gods of social media. This clamoring, wanting to know what he or she is saying. Oh, I've got to know what they're saying. I've got to know what's going on. And so you have your phone in your hand and it's always with you and you're always checking. And you're always wanting to know what, who's, what's going on. Church, if that's how we're operating, we can call it what we want, but it's a God. It's got your heart. Even in the Christian realm, in the church realm, we have these gods of music where we treat them as the same star celebrity mindset. The gods of food and the gods of family. Yes, family. I'm saying family. Where we raise up and exalt family above everything else that's going on. God of denominationalism. Whereby we see things only through a particular lens. And if it comes to me in any way, shape, or form outside the lens of this denominational, well, it's got to be wrong. I can't accept it. I can't receive it. What does the word say? We could go on. One's attire, the God of one's attire. Got to dress a certain way. See, it's easy and I believe somewhat safe for the church to point out examples in the world where idolatry is seen. It's a bit harder to look at this perfect law of liberty, as James would say in chapter 1. It's a bit harder to look in the perfect law of liberty and see that the church has been dabbling in some of the same idolatrous activities. See, it's dangerous to start shining the light within the church and exposing the deeds of darkness. <laughs> the idolatry that, ha- that, that this idolatry has, has no place, church, within the body of Christ. We are a people who, we call ourselves Christians. The word Christ is in there. Followers of Jesus. Disciples. And what we read here in, in, in Acts 14, we see this idolatry going on in Lystra. It rained. It had been going on for a while in Lystra. And here comes God's set-apart ones with the gospel. Conflict is in process. I want you to look at what Paul says as he rushes on the scene to halt the flurry of sacrifices. Read with me. I'm going to start in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes. That was a Jewish representation of something that was done out of blasphemy. Remember when Jesus was on trial? Remember he says, you know, they ask him if he's the son of God, and he says, it is as you say. Well, they thought that was blasphemy. Oh, we've heard enough, they said. And they start tearing the robes and make a big deal and it goes on from there. This truly was blasphemy. <laughs> and so they come in here and they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitude, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless, some of your translations have vain, 
useless, vain things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You see, idolatry is a heart issue. Something has a tug on your heart and it keeps on pulling you, keeps on calling you toward it. Paul is calling those in Lystra to turn from these useless, these vain things to the living God. Useless things are nothing more than idols. Idols are substitutes for God in your life. They serve as a supplement to God, something that you might deem necessary. I got to have it. I have to have it in addition to Jesus. I have Jesus, but I got to have this other too. I got to have it. I got to have it. We see that Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, first chapter, verse 9, he's writing and he talks about how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God. First John, the epistle of 1 John, he ends with this verse in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, little children, it's almost like a reminder. The last part of the, the, the last verse in the, in the letter He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The call in verses 14 through 17 is is to a people who have been steeped in idolatry for some time. They have very little, if any, reference point to the Old Testament scriptures. Do you notice that Paul doesn't use any Old Testament scriptures here? There's a reason for that. And really, we'll get to it in a few weeks. But this, this, this message right here that Paul delivers in chapter 14 is going to be comparable in some ways, to the message he delivers at Mars Hill in Athens when we get in Acts 17. Okay? That was a group of people that were very intelligent people. They, they were essentially just liking to hear all that came into town. They were open to new ideas, these people in Athens. There's some similarities in what gets preached here in 14 and what we'll see in Acts 17. But with the nature of Paul's speech here in verses 15, 16, and 17. Tells you a lot about his audience. He begins with God. Begins with God, showing how all things come from God. All these different gods that you hold up, he says, let me tell you about the God of heaven. He made all of this that you see. He provides your rain for the crops. He gives you sunshine needed for those crops. He's behind all the good things in your life. He's the one who fills your hearts with gladness. God is the one who's behind it all. And you know, church, as we, as we think about the goodness of God here and how God has provided evidence of himself, you may be inclined to think about Romans 1. It says, for the wrath, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
We see even in the next chapter in, in Romans chapter 2. Paul's talking about the Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. Although they not having the law are a law to themselves. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So not only does creation, but, but he's written the law in their heart. The conscience even bears witness to this very idea that there is a God. There is a God, a creator God. Man is without excuse. And even in light of all of those words, we see verse 18. It says that with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. You know, it's almost that they, they enjoyed what Paul had to say there. I think Paul was trying to give them some help to understand that, hey, wait a minute. All these gods that you hold to, there is one God. Let me tell you about this God. This God who helps you with your crops. This God who gives you sunshine. This God who fills your heart with glad. There is one God who does all of this. And it's almost as though the message was, well, it is, they, they, they liked it. Oh, okay. And they're still ready to sacrifice. Idolatry makes it difficult to see clearly, doesn't it? Unless we read this text and we begin to point fingers at those in Lystra. It's good to be reminded, for we ourselves were also once foolish, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, Titus 3 verse 3 says. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 3 talk about who we once were when we were dead. We were children of wrath. Children of disobedience. Children who walked in the ways of the prince of the power of the air. The gospel creates conflict where idolatry has previously reigned. It's about this time when another layer of conflict makes its way into the city of Lystra. Look at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium, hopefully those cities ring a bell. Chapter 13 and early in chapter 14, these Jews from Antioch and Iconium, do you remember? If we, we don't have to read very far. These Jews from Antioch and Iconium, we know there was trouble that happened in those places. Conflict happened there. And Jews from those places came there to Lystra. And having persuaded the multitudes... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Well, this gospel creates conflict, not only through public proclamation, not only wherever idolatry previously reigns, but here in 19, especially, and in the 20, you see that the gospel creates conflict, this conflict that can result in personal suffering. Gospel that can create conflict in terms of personal suffering. You know, when you go back to that passage I read earlier in Acts 5, the apostles were arrested a second time following their rescue from the angel of the Lord. And once the apostles were beaten and scolded for preaching in the name of Jesus, they were let go. I want you to listen to these words in Acts 5, 41 and 42. They're instructive not only for the apostles, but for anyone today who desires to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame 
for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we also see that near the end of his life, the apostle Paul is reminded of this particular time. This particular time we're reading about in Acts 14. He's reminded of this time in Galatia as he writes to young Timothy a resident of Lystra. 2 Timothy 3. Paul writes these words as he's in prison about to die. He says, but you have carefully, you, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. That's the message he's passing along to Timothy. He's not telling Timothy this from the perspective of, hey, here's what happened to me, so make sure you don't go there. He's telling them this. Everyone who is godly is going to go through this. Persecution, some kind of suffering. And as he's about to leave the earth, sitting in a Roman prison, Paul is reminding Timothy about the difficult path of one who follows Jesus. A disciple of Jesus must be willing, must be willing to walk the hard road. In the West, we seem to have very little idea of what it is to walk the hard road. We live in a culture that has everything at its fingertips. Godliness includes persecution and suffering. And yet in general, I I don't believe that the church wants anything to do with it. Paul is stoned. And without assigning motives to the folks in Antioch and Iconium who show up on the scene in verse 19. They come to town and they end up persuading the idolaters in Lystra of these bad characters that are in their midst. Stones were hurled at Paul for proclaiming the gospel. Real stones. Not some little pebbles. Some stones. Thrown at him with the intent to kill. Thrown at him for speaking of Jesus as the only way to God. For speaking of salvation as something available to Jews and Gentiles. Since the gospel creates conflict wherever it goes, it's important that the disciple of Jesus have courage to face the conflict. To suffer if need be for the sake of Christ. To come to realize what your life is. It's a vapor, the Bible says. And to know that to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. Paul was stoned and he was dragged out of Lystra. He was left for dead. Look at verse 20. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. 
The gospel moved out of Jerusalem through the martyrdom of Stephen. Do you remember that? And by the way, who was standing there while Stephen was getting martyred? Stoned. Paul was. And now Paul all of a sudden finds himself on the other end. He's not the one standing by now observing these people stoning Stephen. He himself is the one receiving the stones. As you keep reading the book of Acts, you see that the gospel is oftentimes propelled through suffering, through persecution. And as much as people try to stomp out this word of God, the word of God just keeps on marching on, keeps going. These disciples gathered around Paul. Leads me to believe that some actually came to believe in God in that pagan city. Amen. Praise the Lord. There are some disciples that gathered around him. And together with Paul, then they go back into the city. Now, right there, I have to admit, I question Paul's decision making. After having just been pelted with stones, he goes back into the city. Luke doesn't give us a record of what happens when he goes back into the city. But evidently everything was okay because the next day he and Barnabas travel on to Derby. A man who nearly lost his life is on the road again. Think about that. This guy has just been stoned, left for dead. Disciples gather around him, brush him off. I mean, he's probably got cuts and blood. He's just probably a mess. And that day, he makes his way back into the city. And the next day, he makes the journey with his feet. He's going. A man who nearly lost his life is on the road again, sustained by the Lord to travel once again to another town. Different town, same gospel. You know, some of you here today may share some similarities with those in Lystra. You sit here holding on to your idols. You've yet to give up your idols. You like indulging the flesh, feeding your own selfish appetites, doing your own thing. You've been holding on to your own set of gods for quite some time now. Are these gods going to offer you eternal life? Are you living your life like the man? Really, this is characteristic of those in Lystra. Remember that man, Pliable? There's obstinate and pliable, and they're walking together early on in Pilgrim's Progress. Obstinate, this just wasn't for him. He goes back, and Pliable stays. Christian's telling him about this book, about his journey. And so pliable, being the kind of guy that he is, he said, all right, well, I'll continue on with you a little bit. Until they fall into the slough of despond. Well, pliable, as you might guess, pliable wasn't really happy about that. And it wasn't long after pulling himself out of the slough of the, you know, he's going back. Things getting a little hard. They got a little difficult. And I wonder today, are there people... Here, that are living their life like this man, Plywood Fickle, 
easily tossed by the wind. I mean, think about it. These people in, in Lystra, they were ready to sacrifice to these men serving as, they, they were the gods come down. And then the very next verse, these characters from Antioch and Iconium come in and they said, the scripture says they persuaded them. I mean, come on, what kind of people are you? You're for them, you're against them. You're for them, you're against them. Today can be the day that you turn from the idols in your life and turn to the living God. That's what Paul says here as he's preaching to the people in Lystra. These useless things, these vain things, turn from those idols and turn to the living God. And today can be the day that you stand firm, that you're not wishy-washy, you're not fickle about things. You're going to stand firm on the Lord Jesus Christ. What needs to happen? What do we need to do? Well, repent would be a good way to start. Just to turn to God in prayer, asking him to forgive you for your sins, recognizing before God that it's your sin that's kept you as a stranger. You can be rest assured that the Bible promises God's cleansing in your life. When you confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9, it's because he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive your sin, and he's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then turn to God. Turn away from sin, and then turn to God. Having repented and turned from your sins, turn to God, turn your eyes upon him. Turn your eyes away, the psalmist says, from worthless things. These things that once captured your attention. And run to God. The prophet writer says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Run to the strong tower. Turn to God. And then do works befitting repentance. You see, your salvation is much more than another number brought into the kingdom. This is not just about getting saved. It's about living the life of a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is intended to be lived out for the world to see. And so doing works befitting repentance is making your life readily available to God now to walk in the way of Jesus from this point forward. To submit your life before God knowing that his call on your life may lead to, may lead to suffering, might even lead to death. Repent, turn to God, do works befitting repentance. That's not my idea. That's not Steve's um, solution. That's Acts 26. That's exactly the way Paul lived his life. He's standing before King Agrippa and he says, this is what I live my, this is what I did. This is my life. This is all I talked about when I went traveling city to city. Repent. He called people to repent. He called them to turn to God and he called them to do works befitting repentance. If it's good enough for the apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. It's good enough for you, church. Some of you here in the text share common ground with the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. In that you are already in Christ. You are a disciple of Jesus. I believe one of the lessons in the text here is that no, no amount of conflict, there's no amount of conflict that's going to stop God and his word from going forward. Amen? Doesn't matter what the conflict. God's going to get done. God's going to do what he pleases. There's something, though, that can put a halt to God's work. And, and it has nothing to do with God. It's the availability and faithfulness of God's workers. 
the availability and the faithfulness of God's workers. His gospel carriers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We have here some people who in this place are hard workers. We've got some hard workers. God is looking for workers in his field. A a disciple is a learner, a follower of the master. Are you working hard at following the one whom you profess? A life spent for Christ may produce some visible fruit. Paul and Barnabas were able to see some visible fruit in these places that they're traveling. It may involve years of planting seeds without any visible fruit. I'm I'm reminded of the story of William Carey, missionary to India. And it was said that he spent seven years ministering in India before his first convert. Seven years. I can imagine after a time, after a month or two or three or four, and seeing a bunch of rejection, a bunch of rejection, a bunch of rejection. Well, I don't know if this is what... I don't know. Seven years of planting seeds... The Lord brought a wonderful harvest. A life spent for Christ might bring about division. It might include difficulty. It might include discomfort. It might bring about dangerous threats to your life. It might even lead to death. Church, is Christ worth it? Is he worth it? Is it worth the conflict to publicly proclaim Jesus? To talk about Jesus? Is it worth the conflict to call people to turn from their idols to serve the living God? Is the gospel worth suffering for? Is Jesus really your pearl of great price? Is he really the treasure buried in the field worth everything that you have? And you may be sitting there going, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Let me tell you, your life witness testifies whether Christ is worth it. Your life witness testifies whether Christ is worth it. And perhaps this is one reason, church. So many have yet to believe the gospel. They hear one thing. They see something else. A disciple is willing to speak for Jesus and live for Jesus no matter the cost. And there's an account in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is talking about all these things that happened to him. And 2 Corinthians, we're led to believe 2 Corinthians was written about 10 years after these events we're reading about in Acts 14. But yet Paul still reminds, is reminded of what happened in Lystra. For one of the things that he accounts for there in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 and following. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. And he says, once I was stoned. Paul remembered it. And we see that Galatians, in Galatians, remember, the region that he's visiting here is in the region of Galatia. And so it's helpful as you're reading these chapters here in in Acts 13 and 14 to be able to read through even the book of Galatians. For it's thought that Galatians was written uh, in Antioch after the missionary journey number one. And at the end of Galatians, in chapter 6, Verse 17, Paul says, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. See, at the end of his life, having gone through a long list of suffering for the sake of the gospel, Paul writes these words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8. He says, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. You see, he fought the good fight. And we see here in Lystra in Acts chapter 14, he got knocked down pretty good. But he rose up and he kept going as long as the Lord sustained him. He finished the course set before him. He kept the faith. He didn't give in here in in Acts 14. He didn't give in to the temptation of being one of the Lystrian gods. Oh, how nice it would have been to be exalted as a god. And Paul refused it. Barnabas refused it. They kept the faith. They were looking forward to the prize set before them. Christ, the heavenly city. And so we see here, church, the gospel indeed creates conflict. But truly, it only does so when it's proclaimed and lived out. There's then responsibility on our end, is there not? Any disciples here willing to speak and live wholeheartedly for Jesus? That's the question I come away with as I read this. Are there any disciples here willing to speak and live wholeheartedly for Jesus? May it be so. Let's pray. Father, move us from our places of comfort and remind us of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Stir within us a passion for walking with you, for living like Jesus in a world that needs to see him desperately. Employ our tongues, our hands, our feet for your service only in the days remaining that you have ordained for us. We praise you, God, that you are a mighty God, that there's no conflict that can stop you or thwart your purposes here on earth. No conflict can stop the gospel truth from marching onward. We praise you for that good news in the name of Jesus, our conquering King. Amen.